When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Tonight on The Readout. You would draw your people close to you, God, so that we would, so that we could hear your voice. So we can hear your voice. The new speaker, Mike Johnson, in an October prayer call, says American culture is dark and depraved. The same Mike Johnson who played a key role in the depraved effort to overturn the 2020 election. Also tonight, the judge in Trump's New York fraud trial issues a ruling about Trump's request for a mistrial using words like nonsensical, red herring, and bad faith. And what awfulness does the extremist Moms for Liberty have in store for us next, following their huge losses across the country on election night? But we begin tonight, nearly three years since an army of MAGA extremists laid siege to the U.S. Capitol at the direction of Donald Trump in a final attempt to hold on to his seat of power. Since then, we have learned a lot about the confluence of events leading up to that day and what occurred on the day itself. But one aspect of that, one aspect that continues to be shrouded in some mystery was Trump's bizarre efforts to get the capital, get to the Capitol and join the very people he unleashed on Congress. You might remember Cassidy Hutchinson's bombshell testimony to the January 6th committee last year, recounting what she was told by Trump's deputy chief of staff, Tony Arnato, on January 6th about Trump's aggressive insistence on going to the Capitol. I looked at Tony and he had said, did you effing hear what happened in the beast? The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president. Take me up to the Capitol now. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel. And when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. Trump denied trying to grab the steering wheel or lunging at his lead Secret Service agent. But NBC News has obtained a new audio recording of Trump speaking with ABC's Jonathan Carl back in March of 2021, talking about how the Secret Service stopped him from going to the Capitol that day. But if you look at the real size of that crowd, it was never reported correctly. Mm -hmm. There were the biggest crowd I've ever spoken in front of by far. Really? By far. That went down to the Washington, that went back to the Washington Monument. Um, you told them you were going to go up to the Capitol, were you just... I was, no, I was going to, and the Secret Service said, you can't. And then by the time, I would have. And then when I got back, I saw, I wanted to go back. I was thinking about going back during the problem to stop the problem, doing it myself. Secret Service didn't like that idea mm-hmm. too much. So, so what... And I could so- have done that. And you know what? I would have been very well received. Don't forget... The people that went to Washington that day, in my opinion, they went because they thought the election was rigged. That's why they went. I wonder why they thought that. And by the way, in case 
You missed it. Let me just read again what Trump said regarding when he returned to the White House after his rally. Quote, I said I wanted to go back. I was thinking about going back during the problem to stop the problem doing it myself. Who knew Trump was so concerned about the insurrection? It is hard to believe, given that everything we know about Trump's actions or inactions that day contradicts what Trump told Jonathan Carl. You know, the 187 minutes between Trump finishing his rally speech and when he finally put out a video telling his supporters to leave the Capitol, but not before telling them that he loves them and that they are very special. In fact, from what we know, he just sat there for three hours watching the television coverage, unwilling to listen to the countless pleas coming from his White House staff members, members of Congress who were under attack, various Fox primetime hosts, and even his own family members. Did you ever hear the vice president, or excuse me, the president no. ask for the National no. Guard? Did you ever hear the president ask for law enforcement response? No. Did you continue, Mr. Cipollone, throughout the period of time up until 417, continue, you and others, to push for a stronger state? Yes. Were you joined in that effort by Ivanka Trump? Yes. Eric Hershey? Yes. By Mark Meadows? Yes. Republican leader about this, um, and he said he called Donald. He finally got through to Donald Trump, and he said, "You have got to get on TV. You've got to get on Twitter. You've got to call these people off." And the president's response to Kevin to me was chilling. He said, "Well, Kevin, I guess they're just more upset about the election, uh, you know, theft than you are." Recently, NBC's Kristen Welker gave Trump an opportunity to clear it all up. Tell me how you watched this all unfold. Were you in the dining room watching TV? I'm not going to tell you. I'll tell people later at an appropriate time. Did you call military or law enforcement at the moment the Capitol was under attack? I'm not going to tell you anything. Let me put it this way. I behaved so well. I did such a good job. Mm, Yeah, Trump actually believes he deserves a gold star for how well he behaved that day. And given that Trump has claimed that he would absolutely testify at his criminal trials, I wonder if his federal election interference trial will be the appropriate time to explain these quite contradictory things, especially if he believed that he could have stopped the insurrection if he wanted to. Joining me now is Charles Coleman, Jr., former prosecutor and MSNBC legal analyst, and Hugo Lowell, political investigations reporter for The Guardian. Thank you both for being here. Charles, I I do want to start with you because uh, I'm going to read it again. I said I wanted to go back. I was thinking about going back during the problem to stop the problem and doing it myself. So obviously, Donald Trump believes that he had influence over the crowd. Now, let me play you what convicted insurrectionist rioter Stephen Ayers told the January 6th committee about when he would have left and why he would have left the Capitol. Take a listen. As soon as that come out, everybody started talking about it, and that's, it seemed like it started to disperse basically when President Trump put his tweet out. We literally left right after that come out. Um, you know, to me, if he would have done that earlier in the day, 1.30, I, I, you, know, you know, we wouldn't be in this, maybe we wouldn't be in this bad of a situation or something. It seems to me that he has essentially now admitted that he had some control over the crowd. At least that's what he seems to be admitting. And he seems to be kind of corroborating what Cassidy Hutchinson told the January 6th committee about his insistence to the Secret Service that he go to the Capitol. All of this does not seem good if you're a defendant in a trial like the January 6th case. Your thoughts? 
Joy, I'd agree with you. And I'd also point out that the same things that you noticed during your reading are the same things that I noticed as I was listening and watching. Namely, when Donald Trump said, for example, that he believed that the people there were there because they thought it was a rigged election, the immediate thought that I had was, well, how did they get that thought? They got that thought because this was something that you were pushing. And now in, if you combine that and you combine the notion of you knowing that or you believing and openly stating that you believe you would be well received if you would go into the Capitol and acknowledging that there was a problem. That's also key language when he says during the problem. That's also key language because he's at that point admitting that we're not dealing with a protest. We're not dealing with people who are using their First Amendment right to disagree. We're dealing with rioters. So the fact that he used that language, all of that combined does not bode well for him continuing to have the defense that he has in this case. You know, and Hugh Lowell, that would make Donald Trump the only person anywhere near the Capitol, Democrat or especially Republican, who thought the crowd would receive him well. Every Republican ran, including Josh Fist Up Holly, who threw the fist up to them, but then ran like hell from them, including people like Matt Gates. All of them evacuated. Jim Jordan, people who were down with the, the, the whole ma madness, but they ran. He seems to think he wouldn't have had to run. Around Donald Trump, are any of his lawyers getting nervous or are any in Trump world getting nervous that he seems to be admitting to the whole thing Scooby-Doo villain style? Yeah, I think it's a tacit admission that Trump knew the people at the Capitol, the people storming in the Capitol were his people and that he had a lot of influence over them, whether to send them to the Capitol. You know, that was the language he used at the Ellipse rally speech. He said, you know, I'm going to march with you to the Capitol. And then for him to come away from the whole January 6th uh, incident, you know, days or weeks later and say, well, you know, I could have actually stopped it as well because effectively they're his people, I think is a really big admission. And it's the kind of thing that defense lawyers and his team in particular have been very wary about him saying. They've been trying to limit him talking about the January 6th case in particular, especially, you know, now that he's been indicted, you know, this was an audio uh, interview that happened uh, you know, a couple of years ago, but his team now are trying to stop him from making these sorts of admissions <laughs> because it is the sort of thing that Jack Smith, the special counsel, will take up and use against him at trial. I, I will note that Do Judge Tanya Chutkin has rejected Donald Trump's team's request uh, to strike references to the January 6th violence from his indictment because, again, owning the violence and saying he could have stopped it does seem to me but as an admission against uh, as, admi as an admission that is against his own interests uh, speaking of trying to get him to stop saying words um there is for now uh, a stay on the gag order in the federal election interference case, Charles Coleman Jr. Uh, there is an appeal to the Supreme Court pending. Apparently, Trump has indicated he would like to go to the Supreme Court. His friends, his appointees on the Supreme Court to try to do that. But I will know, and I'm just going to put it up on the screen, since that stay has happened, he has unleashed a barrage of attacks again, attacking the law clerk again, um, Judge Engeron's law clerk, attacking Judge Engeron going on and on and on and on and on. And this after Judge Engeron denied Trump's request for a mistrial. Your thoughts on the fact that the mistrial was denied and that the gag order immediately upon him, uh, it being lifted, he went right back in. 
Well, listen, Joy, I'm not surprised at either of those things. I knew that the mistrial was more than likely going to be denied. Uh, people file for mistrials in the midst of trials all the time. They are seldom, if ever, successful unless there's a clear, hard and fast rule that has been broken or violated. And so that should come as no surprise to anyone. The fact that they brought the motion itself, I would argue, was frivolous, but it appears that Judge Ingeron did not want to go that far. But with respect to the gag order, I'm also not surprised that Donald Trump has gone as far as he has in terms of immediately doubling down with respect to his rhetoric, targeting different individuals. But here's the thing. As we look at the game plan that he has laid out, it's very clear and it's smart money to bet that Donald Trump feels very good about his odds should he be able to get before the Supreme Court of the United States of America. And it's very clear that now we see that blueprint laid out pretty plainly as he has already started to make appeals to try to get this there. He is going to try and put the pressure on the courts to get this as far as it can go in terms of getting in front of the Supreme Court so that he can rely on his friends to try to give him carte blanche to say what it is that he wants to say, not only during the civil trial, but using this as a test case for everything else going on in all his other legal matters. I want to note just for the audience uh, that while we're talking about this, uh, we have now got a ruling in the Colorado case that was attempting to remove Donald Trump from the ballot based on the 14th Amendment uh, and whether or not he is qualified uh, based on the idea of insurrection, which is detailed in the 14th Amendment. Uh, I'll go to you, Hugo Lowell, on the fact that this judge has denied that attempt to take Donald Trump off the ballot, meaning at least as of now, I guess, pending maybe some kind of an appeal, he will be on the ballot in Colorado. Um that seems like a fairly important development, and it's a signal to other states. I'm assuming. Yeah, look, you know, we had the we had the same ruling um, elsewhere uh, with Minnesota. I mean, you know, these ballot removal efforts are, are going to be and clearly very difficult because it's such a high bar to remove a candidate from the ballot, uh, and in this case in particular, because you know Trump wasn't charged with insurrection or inciting insurrection in the federal case. I think it was always going to be an uphill struggle for people to say. You know, at the state level, that that was the conduct he engaged in. Therefore, he should be removed uh, from the ballot leading up to the election. And you know, I just wanted to say one thing about the, the gag order uh, and kind of Trump's approach to it, because this has become more and more apparent in the weeks uh, since these all these orders have come down. Is you know, it's very clear that Trump's team and Trump himself sees no downside in assailing the judges or the prosecutors in any of his cases, because if he does get hit with a gag order, then he can use that as political messaging to his supporters to say, oh, you know, this is uh, political interference. They're trying to stop me from, you know, addressing my accusers. You know, that's the sort of language he likes to use. And the moment that uh, there is a stay on those orders or they're paused or suspended in some way, he can go back to saying the judges. Ultimately, his end goal is the same. He wants to claim that these cases are political and he doesn't really care if that means because you know he's going to be restrained by a judge or if he's unrestrained. And he's also got a team because one of his most embarrassing sycophants, Elise Stefanik, Congresswoman from New York, is now taking credit for the gag order and saying, see, her attempt to file an ethics complaint against the judge is why it happened. Last question to you uh, on on this, Charles Coleman Jr. Does it now seem perhaps ill-advised that Jack Smith not have charged him with insurrection, Donald Trump? Because had he, let's say eventually he was convicted of, of insurrection, uh, under the Insurrection Act, it would probably make a clearer case for Colorado and other states, right, to take him off the ballot. Joy, you're absolutely right. It would. But I don't know that I would go as far as to say this was ill-advised for Jack Smith, because as you consider that, you also have to consider the alternative. Let's say he was charged and he was acquitted. 
then that easily makes him have a much stronger case against these 14th Amendment challenges that, quite frankly, from the very outset, I was skeptical of and did not necessarily think they were going very, very far. But that's the risk that you would have been taking if you are Jack Smith, which is why, as a prosecutor, you really have to stick to what it is that you can believe that you believe you can prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Charles Coleman Jr. and Hugo Lowell, thank you both very much. Up next on The Readout, extremist parental rights group Moms for Liberty gave it their best shot, but their attempt to infiltrate school boards across the country was soundly rejected by voters on Election Day. The Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. In the wake of last week's election, we're learning a lot about what the American public can and cannot stomach. And it's looking like the post-COVID Christopher Rufo manufactured hysteria about woke education is something they cannot. Voters across the country rejected candidates for school boards backed by the conservative Moms for Liberty, which casts itself as a parental rights organization. It was an equal opportunity shellacking from voters in red, purple and blue states. Moms for Liberty claimed that roughly 40 percent of their candidates won their races. 1776 Project claimed that 58 percent of their candidates won. However, the American Federation of Teachers countered the candidates publicly endorsed by conservative groups like Moms for Liberty and the 1776 Project lost about 70 percent of their races nationally in elections this week. Bottom line, exhausted parents across the board show that they are sick and tired of book bans, racially exclusive lessons, and the anti-LGBTQ agenda. It happened in Ruby Red, Iowa, where two-term abortion-banning Governor Kim Reynolds and the Republican legislature have restricted what is taught, what is read, and who you can be. In her state, just one of the 13 candidates endorsed statewide by Moms for Liberty won their race. In neighboring Minnesota, all Moms for Liberty-backed candidates lost as did all of their candidates in Washington state and Kansas. 19 of their candidates lost in New Jersey and in Ohio, 20 candidates backed by the group lost. Only five were elected. Meanwhile, in battleground Pennsylvania, sensible parents flipped school board majorities in districts, including Bucks County, where every single extremist member was swept out of office. The rejection of education fanaticism went even further in Virginia, where Governor Glenn Youngkin, who told us he won because he promoted parental rights and promptly went about banning CRT and setting up a hotline to narc on people who teach the truth, failed spectacularly as candidates echoing his 2021 education fanaticism lost. The governor might have seen what was coming if he spent a little time listening to all Virginians and not just Moms for Liberty.
no matter how hard you try to implement these discriminatory policies in the right way, you are never going to find a right way to do the wrong thing. And Governor Youngkin's policies are wrong. One of the ways you could tell is because you have speakers from groups like Moms for Liberty here to support them. And I'll be real simple in case you aren't paying attention. They're not the good guys. How can you tell? I can help. The good guys don't get declared extremist groups by human rights organizations. Never in history have the good guys been the ones trying to ban books. Joining me now is Brittany Packnett Cunningham, activist, MSNBC political analyst, and host of the Undistracted podcast, and Judd Legum, author of the Popular Information Newsletter, from where we got a lot of this information. So thank you for coming on, Judd. Let me start with you. This was a wholesale butt-kicking for Moms for Liberty. Uh, did anyone see that coming? Well, I think it's tough to say because especially these off-year elections, no one really knows who's going to show up. But I do think it was a resounding rejection for them. One of the reasons why some of these statistics are a little fuzzy is because I think Moms for Liberty realized that their endorsement was a problem. And in many of these counties in Pennsylvania and elsewhere did not formally endorse candidates because they thought that that would actually hurt the candidates that they supported. So they would produce voter guides and other things uh, to let their voters know. Um, but it is a very small group of people who are really focused on getting books out of schools, restricting uh, LGBTQ curriculum uh, in the classroom. There's a county in Florida that I've been reporting on, Santa Rosa County. There are 30,000 students. They said to all the parents, hey, if you don't want your child checking out a book without permission, if you want to restrict their ability to use uh, the libraries, just let us know. Only 50 parents took them up on that. 50 out of 30,000. So we really are talking about a very small minority of people. Right. And Brittany, uh, former teacher, former Teach for America teacher, uh, I, I really wanted to talk to you about this because you've actually been in the classroom and sort of know how this works. I mean, I, you know, I lived in Broward County, Florida. I know someone there who's been involved in fights with literally two people who constantly harass to get books out in giant Broward County. Moms for Liberty has called the cops on librarians in Florida claiming they're distributing pornography because they're allowing people to check out books. This is where we are. Just from your point of view um, as an activist and also as a former teacher, what does it mean that people are actually now showing up and voting these people out? It means that at the very least domestically, we're understanding how to see fascism when it's coming, how to observe authoritarianism when it's coming around the corner and actually do something about it. We still got to work on it internationally for sure. But what people are realizing is what Carter G. Woodson said when he founded Negro History Week, which of course became Black History Month in 1926. He said very clearly that the campaign for teaching accurate wholesale Black history in America America was even more important than the anti-lynching campaign, because where else does a lynching begin but in the classroom? So we're seeing people wake up all over the country. They're asking Moms for Liberty exactly which parents you claim to represent, because parents and former teachers like me don't seem to count. And they're saying unequivocally um, that we want to make sure that the right ideals, the right foundation for a strong citizenry is actually built in our schools instead of destroyed in those same classrooms.
You know, and Judd, I think that is one of the keys here is that it's parents who are fighting back. And a lot of the times these Moms for Liberty activists actually don't have kids in the school. Uh, that is true. Uh, one of the uh, you, you referenced this report that I, I published a, a couple of weeks ago about um, a couple of Moms for Liberty members who went to their sheriff's office, uh, reported the local librarian for felonies, was trying to get them charged with felonies. And one of the individuals who went to the uh, police station was a 77 year old man who didn't have any uh, students in the uh, in the district. And uh, it's really about this uh, demonization of school librarians. And I think that's where it's kind of goes over the line is that regular parents know, look, they can differ politically. They might be conservative. Other people might be liberal. These are some really red areas where Moms for Liberty lost a lot of the time. But they know that the school librarian is not there to be a predator uh, of, of their kids. The school librarians are to do the very best job they can to offer some books to get their kids interested in reading. That's why they've devoted their lives to being a school librarian. Right. And Brittany, I mean, the, the book banning is just one part of this sort of Christopher Rufo invented fake CRT, you know, hysteria that started after the 1619 Project. And it is very focused. It's focused on anything that has to do with black history, LGBTQ folks, and in some cases, Holocaust history. Um, and they're very focused on just those things, which makes it clear that their agenda is political. Um, what is kind of what we should learn from the fact that Somehow activists have managed to identify these people, call them out and get folks to come out and vote. Yeah, what we should learn is that the folks who are in opposition to us are going to remain creative. If they can't ban the books, then they'll find a way to fire the teachers. If they can't fire the teachers, they'll get rid of the superintendent. If they can't get rid of the superintendent, then they'll get a governor uh, like the governor of Florida to just create statewide laws that remove this kind of history and teaching out of everything from elementary schools to graduate schools and so many places in between. But what we can also learn is that we have to be just as if not more creative. You know, election day this year, when it came to the issue of schooling, really was a culmination of efforts that have been happening over the last two years. We saw people buying banned books completely out of uh, uh, bookstores, right? Selling them out, giving them away for free. We saw folks starting free libraries on their blocks to make sure um, that young people had access to those books. We see musicians giving away free banned books at their concerts. And so that creates all kind of coalesced on election day to make sure that we could root it out from the electoral space. But we absolutely have to stay focused on this because the ignorance that they're trying to build in all of our children is deeply intentional. And they're going to try to get creative in how they continue to do that. Indeed, indeed. But don't you love it when a majority acts like a majority? Uh, we're here for it. Um, Brittany Packnett Cunningham, Judd Legum. Thank you both very much. And coming up, Christmas came early, or at least Scrooge did. Our new House Speaker believes our country deserves God's wrath. And Jesse Waters is at your local Target crusading against gay nutcrackers and Black Santa. We'll try to figure out what on earth they're talking about next. Next. 
Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at msnbc.com. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, console Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Since just the mere words diversity and inclusion incite a tantrum over at Fox, this year's war on Christmas meltdown over inanimate objects, it came early, thanks to Jesse Waters. Gay nutcracker, complete with a rainbow hat, a trans flag, full price, $12, but right now it's on sale for eight. Target also sells Santa ornaments, but Target's Santa is in a wheelchair and is black. Gay Nutcracker and Wheelchair Santa might be the only items in Target that don't get looted. How dare Target make the Yuletide gay? (laughs) And having black children and kids in wheelchairs see a Santa looks like them? What is this country coming to? Well, let's ask the gentler version of a Fox zealot currently running the House of Representatives, House Speaker Mike Johnson. In a Zoom call he participated in just weeks before he was elected speaker, A Christian nationalist preacher asked him to say more about a quote, time for judgment, time of judgment for America. You all know the the terrible state that we're in. Um, The faith in our institutions is as low as it's ever been in the history of our nation. Um, The the, the culture is so dark and and depraved that it almost seems irredeemable at this point. We, you know, we're we're, the church attendance in America dropped below 50 percent for the first time in our history since they began to measure the the data. One in three teen girls uh, contemplated suicide last year. One in four high school students identifies as something other than straight. Um, We're losing the country. Joining me now is Dean Obadala, host of the Dean Obadala Show on Sirius XM. And Michelangelo Signorelli, host of the Michelangelo Signorelli Show, also on Sirius XM. All of y'all on Sirius XM, name your shows after yourselves. My show is called <laughs> The Readout, so maybe it's just maybe it's just an us thing. Uh, Michelangelo Signorelli, you are named after the man who painted the Vatican, so it falls to you to explain what is going on with the gay nutcracker and the black Santa in a wheelchair. How dare you make the Yuletide gay? Why? Why, my friend? Why? Uh, they are reacting to everything that's happening in this world that is just threatening them in enormous ways. It's all about their masculinity and they're freaking out. And we see this, of course, with their fighting on the Senate, you know, hearing rooms and, uh, you know, jabbing each other and everything else. Uh, and, you know, it, it's it's they're freaking out about their masculinity. That's it. And, and I do think that is at the core of it, Dean. There, I mean, you had Josh Hawley, of all people, write a book about masculinity, which, like, he's not the most macho guy that I've ever seen, you know, but he's going to fix it. Tucker Carlson had the thing where they were, like, like putting light on their nether regions and posing like Jesus and stuff. Like, th- there is, like, an obsession 
with the kind of old time masculinity on the right. Can you understand why that is and why are they why are they freaking out? I think part of it is the race component because it's a black Santa in a wheelchair. Because <laughs> See, Joy, around Christmas, the only disabled person could be Tiny Tim. He's white. How dare you replace Tiny Tim with a black man? And they had to go say, remember Megan Kelly did the whole black Santa? They're like, black Santa's been done. Oh, wheelchair. We can mock that. Imagine working at Fox <laughs> News as a producer. Like you today, you're going to Target. You go look through baskets and, and boxes of ornaments to find any gay or black thing you can find so we can make fun of it. To me, that's, I don't know if it's a masculinity. I think it's about anything not like them. They don't like it. They're going to mock it. And the worst part is, Joy, their base, their viewers like it. That's what's so sad. The thing is, uh, what their problem is that Santa actually is black. I've actually had him on my show, Black Santa. We'll probably book him again this year. I mean, he just is. Sorry, Megan. Uh, but, but on a more serious note, Michelangelo, I mean, I think people are not taking Michael Mike Johnson seriously enough, honestly. I mean, he has a whole agenda that is a very openly Christian nationalist agenda. And it represents maybe 17% of what people in this country actually want. But he doesn't really care about that. He actually wants to impose it. And he's in a position, he's, he's second, you know, in line to the presidency. It's a big deal. Yeah. And look, he is somebody who spent his entire career demonizing homosexuality. And, you know, he, he worked closely with an ex-gay group, one that now, you know, apologized for the damage it did because they're so dangerous and harmful to people. And, and, and it closed down. He actually worked with this group. He did videos for them. He believes that, you know, homosexuality is depraved, destructive. He believes it's harming people. And, you know, there's a lot been said about why is he so obsessed about this? What is going on with him that he has to work with an ex-gay group? Why does he believe it's a choice? You know, when you say homosexuality is a choice, it's kind of like you made some sort of a choice because most people don't wake up and think, I'm going to choose to be heterosexual today. Same thing with if you're gay. Well, and absolutely. And by the way, he is right about the high suicide rates among teenagers. He might want to ask who those teenagers are and why, because a lot of them are people who are LGBTQ and they are feeling left out in society and demonized by people like him. Uh, let, let's let's talk about the Democrats for a minute, uh, Dean. Mm -hmm. Let me just play a little bit of video here of what happened outside of the Democratic National Committee the other day. A big, huge protest while lawmakers and staff were inside. Um, there is a big rift happening inside of the Democratic Party over what's happening in Gaza. Do you get the sense that Democratic, that, 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 that uh, Joe Biden and members of Congress get it? I don't think there's a rift in the Democratic base. The Reuters poll two days ago showed nearly 80 percent, 80 percent of Democrats want to cease fire. Yet just two days ago, only 25 Democratic House members, 10 percent of the caucus sent a letter saying they want to cease fire. So where the rift is, is between the leadership and the base of our party. And I think as opposed to the GOP, where Republican office holders fear their base, Democrats ignore their base often, or sometimes they're nice to us, but they don't actually listen to us. The callers to my show, including tonight, are outraged at the fact that Democratic leadership is not listening to the base. They want them to be calling for a ceasefire. They've seen the loss of life by the Palestinians. And as Democrats were able to denounce Hamas's terrorist attack, and denounced Netanyahu for killing 4,000 children, which is grotesque and barbaric, what we're seeing right now. Yet, Democratic it, leadership, for whatever calculation, they won't do it. 
And and Joe Biden, um, Michelangelo, he, mm -hmm. he is hard and fast where he is, and he doesn't seem to be moving no matter what the base of the party says, which in a lar large part is people of color and young folks, and those are voters he needs. He's got this foreign policy of like 30 or 40 years ago. He hasn't mm -hmm. dropped out of that. He doesn't see what's happening. He really doesn't want to hear what's happening, seeing what a lot of people are saying and what younger people are saying. And it's the same with many of the Democrats on the Hill. The phones are ringing um, in their offices overwhelmingly calling for a ceasefire, calling for stopping the violence. And even their staffers are protesting. And yet they're not doing anything to connect with those people and listen to those people and really reflect what they believe. Yeah, it is a it is a strange uh, place that we are in uh, uh, in both of these two parties, Dean Obadala and Michelangelo Michelangelo really Thank you both very much. And up next, the situation in Gaza is worsening, with the UN warning that civilians face the immediate possibility of starvation. More on that next. As Israeli forces continue to scour Gaza's Al-Shifa hospital, one plastic surgeon at the facility told NBC News today that dozens of ICU patients have died over the past week, adding that six days ago there were 42 premature babies and now there are 36. It comes as the IDF recovered the bodies of 19-year-old soldier Noah Marciano, as well as 65-year-old Yehudit Weiss, who were both taken hostage by Hamas. Israeli forces say they were discovered in a building adjacent to the hospital. They also claim to have found tunnels and weapons within the complex, though so far they have not provided definitive evidence that Hamas command centers exist beneath Al-Shifa. In the meantime, the humanitarian crisis in Gaza is growing even worse. The United Nations was forced to stop deliveries of food and other necessities to the region today because of a near total communication blackout caused by a lack of fuel. The U.N. also issued a stark warning that because of the lack of food aid, the entire population of Gaza is facing the immediate possibility of starvation. Cindy McCain, who is the executive director of the World Food Program, said today that supplies of food and water are practically non-existent in Gaza, and only a fraction of what is needed is arriving through the borders. The World Health Organization is also sounding the alarm about the spread of disease, especially with winter approaching as the bombardment has caused overcrowding into shelters with scarce clean water. Joining me now is Hani Almadhun, Director of Philanthropy at the United Nations Relief and Works Agency. Uh, Mr. Almadhun, thank you so much for being here. Um, today, uh, is the government in Israel dropped leaflets, or the IDF dropped leaflets warning people to flee south, um, to flee to southern Gaza towns, but that comes after people in North Gaza were warned to flee to the south. So now they're saying to flee to south. Where are they going to go and what will be waiting for Gazans when they get there or wherever they go? Yeah, it's uh, it's a lot. You know, folks uh, can't find if, uh, a safe place in Gaza right now. We're looking at families that moved south already. There's about half, uh, there's about a million and a half Palestine refugees who've sheltered south, and now they're asking them to move. No idea where that move is going to take him to. It's unfortunate because we look at uh, our colleagues at UNRWA, their staff, or the facilities of the UN, and 60% of those facilities that were bombed were bombed in the south. It is unfortunate. 
unfortunate that, you know, even UN flag buildings, UN staff are targeted in those safe zones. Every day there is bomb in Nusayrat. Every day there is bomb in Khan Yunis. Unfortunately, my family still remains behind the north, and they're also seeing a lot of uh, death and destruction all around them. It is simply there is no safe place. We definitely want a ceasefire, a sustainable one. That will save lives. And unfortunately, there is no place in Gaza that is safe, something we've been saying for the last 42 days. Um, you know, it, it strikes me that um, and I'm going to put a, a photo of you and your nephew, um, your your nephew, who is also named Hani. Um, he was shot by a sniper earlier this week. He somehow survived. Please tell us what happened to him. Yeah, Hani Jr. is uh, got shot on uh, Sunday in Sheikh Ridwan neighborhood north. He wanted to go get there out of gas, so he wanted to get the gas cylinder. He never made it to the home, and he got uh, shot in the head. He's given us really a reason for to, to sort of like be thankful in Thanksgiving next week because this is something, you know, miraculous. He got shot. Some brave person really pulled him away from that danger zone, got an ambulance, took him to the Baptist hospital inside Gaza. And guess what? The, the hospital is overcrowded. There is no room to take anybody. He was outside with two dozen other injured Palestinians. Dad finds out. He runs. Lucky enough, he finds a car with enough fuel, looks for, her, for his son inside the parking lot. And then all of a sudden he finds him. No ambulance is coming. He takes him back to the Indonesian hospital, which you've heard is being bombed. In fact, an hour before I came here, it got bombed again. To do a surgery for him under the flashlight for his skull, obviously the bullet hit his skull, but it did not get into his brain. And three hours later, Hani is recovering from his surgery. I was told today that he is uh, able to speak and see, and we feel so fortunate. But this is this is this is a really close one because he's a good kid. He's yeah. 16 years old, and I don't know what to tell you. He did nothing for the Israelis. He did nothing wrong. He had no no. No time to make a bad decision that will put him in a yeah. target list. But sadly, he fell. I am glad that he has uh, made it uh, through that. Um, let me play for you a, a bit of an interview with uh, my colleague uh, and friend Mehdi Hassan did with Mark Regev, who is an ambassador to the current prime minister, Netanyahu. He's Israel's former ambassador to the UK. Take a listen to that interview. More than 11,000 people dead, reported dead, 4,000 children. I just want to pull up on screen. Hamas. You say, yeah, Hamas's you say, numbers. You, Hamas's you say numbers. Hamas's You have no idea how many of them are Hamas uh, terrorists, combatants, and how many are civilians. Hamas would have you believe that they're all civilians, that they're all children. I have seen lots of children with my own lying eyes being pulled from the rubble. Uh, because so, they're the pictures Hamas wants you to see. Exactly my point, they're, they're, dead, they're the pictures also Hamas because, wants... But they're also people no, that your government has uh, killed. You accept that, right? You've killed children, or do you deny no, that? No, I do not. I do not. I do not. First of all, you don't know how those people died, those children. Oh, wow. What do you make of Ambassador Regev uh, casting doubt on whether it is indeed 4,000 children who have died, whether they are actually children or even the overall numbers of dead in Gaza? It, does the U.N. have some independent way of knowing this and verifying it? And what do you make of the doubts being cast? Well, uh, UNRWA does not really make an independent claim. We've been reliant on the numbers provided by, by the health ministry, and they've been reliant through the years. You know, UNRWA is no stranger to this uh, part of the world. You know, I work with UNRWA USA, an independent agency. Now, we don't have any reason to believe there is any lies or fraud here because it's proportional. We're seeing 103 of our staff being killed. So this is just really proportional to what we see. I've known so many families in Gaza that lost loved ones. In fact, if I count me, 
maybe 60 people with the same last name at least uh, from my family got killed. So those are real people, you know, and this, uh, sadly speaking, as a Palestinian American with family in Gaza, this ambassador is basically telling us, you know, whoever is there controlling the stories. And, you know, we want to make sure, you know, we continue to support the people. That's why when we hear stories from the Israelis inside the Shifa hospital, we get concerned because they also control the story. And, you know, we do, they don't allow foreign reporters into Gaza. I wonder why this is. They don't also allow the Red Cross to in the, to, to work in Gaza safely. Who's yeah. going to verify if you're bombing them every five minutes, if you're bombing the UN, if you're bombing reporters and first responders? Yeah. Hani Al-Madun, I'm wishing your family well. Thank you so much for some of your time tonight. Be well. We'll be right back. Let's be honest. The only time we talk about women's reproductive health in politics is usually about abortion. We certainly don't talk about how some people even realize they're pregnant, a missed period, because we don't talk about periods, period. A new documentary from MSNBC Films, Periodical, is looking to remove the stigma around menstruation. Periods. Hmm. Yeah. I hate having my periods. When I was growing up, we did not speak about it. I never had like the period talk with my mom and my dad. I'm supposed to get my period any minute. I think women's bodies are political, and so I think the period is part of that. It's just part of life. We have suppressed that knowledge and made it seem shameful. The word hysteria comes from the word hystera, which is Greek for uterus. Basically, anything that happened with your period made you crazy. <laughs> Periodical airs this Sunday at 10 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC and streaming on Peacock. And before we go, I want to mention we had Dino Badala on tonight. He is hosting the annual New York Arab American Comedy Festival. It's at Town Hall November 19th, featuring Rami Youssef, Tony Shalhoub and other great comedians at 7 p.m. Uh, it is a fundraiser with the proceeds going to a group called Anera, which partners with the World Food Kitchen, which is Jose Andres's organization, to try to feed people in Gaza, a very good cause. We love you, Dean. Thank you. And that is tonight's readout. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah, Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC.